So when Annalise reaches for the red lines first thing in the morning. <laughs> Anybody else having to do any kind of like like pre-fall soul housekeeping? Anybody? Anybody? Am I alone? Okay. Can I get a witness? Okay. So funny how the Lord is with us. It's so good, though. I'm excited about this message. It has taken me forever to sift the one that he desires to bring to you because as I was preparing this, there's three of them in one message. So this is part one. So it is an introduction to the culture of the kingdom. If you would open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 and just stand with me. One more time, let's stretch. Matthew chapter 13. You see, in, in Matthew chapter 13, I love it, that um, Jesus decided to go to Dorshak and hang out on the lake. Him and, his, him and his disciples and buddies, they decided to jump on some jet skis and just make a day of it. So, yeah, Christina's version. Clearwater Corridor version 1.0. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Some of your versions may say he was, he was at the lake. I love that. We find that there's these great multitudes gathered around him, so much so that he had to get out on Larry's boat. And he had to have Larry kind of push out just a little bit so that he had a platform with which to, to speak to the crowd of people that was, was gathered. And as he spoke to the multitude, he spoke many things to them in parables. And Matthew chapter 13 is one of the longest chapters we have that talk about the parables of the kingdom that Jesus spoke. We're just going to highlight a few. You know, he says, behold, um, the sower went out to sow, right? And then in verse 10, it says, the disciples came to him and says, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, he says, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been granted. And he continues on through, and he says, he explains then the parable of the sower that, you know, the, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, or in verse 19, and does not understand it, it says the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the, the seed was sown beside the road. So he begins to, to start teaching that, that those who cannot, they hear the stories and the parables of the kingdom, but they don't understand it. So it gets snatched from them. And he continues on through the chapter, and he says, uh, there's another parable. It says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field, and that's in verse 24. And what happens? We see an enemy comes in and sows bad seed, and, and he says, well, do you want us to just tear that out? He says, no, no, leave it alone. They're going to grow up together, and then there's going to come a day in which my father, he will deal with that, Right? Verse 31, he says, also, the kingdom, it's like a, it's like a mustard seed. And, and we find that it, it gets sown in this field. This little tiny seed becomes this amazing nest for the birds. He says again, continuing on, in the kingdom of heaven, he said, it's like um, a woman who took and hid in three perfect parts of me this leaven. And what do we know about yeast? It makes things grow and it bubbles up. So the kingdom of heaven is meant to make things grow. He continues on, and this is where I want to focus, in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, 
And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Is that your reality of the kingdom? Amazing. Melissa was in, I believe it was, our daughter Melissa, was in the her second year of college. She was going to the College of Idaho down south, and she was majoring as, as a English lit major, and she ended up with a major in English lit, minor in math, and another like a double minor in Spanish. And it was her second year of college, and, and I'd gone down to visit her, and we're sitting outside of this little little pub downtown, Boise, and she's just telling me all of the things that she is learning in her classes, all of the all of the um, the women's lib studies that she's majoring in and all of the material and all of the things, and she's just excited about all of the stuff that she's learning. And I'm listening, and then she says to me, but you know what, Mom, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't believe that there is anything after you die. <laughs> That's what it felt like in my soul, literally, like reverberating shockwaves. And all of the how could a daughter of mine believe that statements were echoing in my soul. What do you mean you don't believe in heaven? What do you mean you don't believe that there's anything after this? What do you mean you don't? And I mean, it was. She sat there and I sat there and I looked at her and she looked at me and I swallowed and she fidgeted and and. It was the grace of God, and it was the the power of Holy Spirit. Because the words that came out of my mouth were, well, I guess that is something that you have to wrestle with. I guess that is the invitation over your life right now. It's for you to discover for yourself what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Needless to say, Mama hit her knees for many years. And it's it's been a beautiful journey to watch how the Lord has encountered her. But what that showed me was there she was in the midst of this culture that was a culture of right now. Right now is all that there is. There is nothing when you die. There is only blackness and darkness. There is no life after this life. There is nothing to look forward to. There is no hope. You are the captain of your own destiny. You are the master of your own fate. If you're going to be anything, it's up to you. And that was the culture. And you see, the battle has always been for the control of culture. From the very, very beginning, there's been a battle over culture. So what is culture? Culture, according to Webster's, is the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize a group of so culture is this, this shared attitude, value, goal, practice that a group of people share. With that said, we can have many, many cultures inside of a culture, can't we? Right? And so we got to go backwards and we have to understand from the beginning what was the culture that God had established from man 
to live in. And we find in Genesis 1, uh, 27 and 28, he has made man in his image, and he has given man and woman all authority, all power, all dominion. He has set them in a, a beautiful garden to tend. Work was not a curse. Work was a, was a means of you being able with, the, with your very own hands to flesh out part of your identity. I mean, Lynn, the way that you love to garden, can you imagine being in Eden and you touching your roses and them actually growing the way that they're supposed to grow? Right? You know, are you getting an idea one day that, I wonder if that one and that one, and you put those together, I wonder if they could get it, and it's happening. You know, Lon, you tending your cattle and them, and them actually thriving, you know, triplets every year, you know? No loss of life. Everything that they did was done with, with, fruitfulness and abundance. That was the culture that man was created to work in. And I believe that there is still within us that remembrance of that culture. Why do you think we struggle so much in futility when with the things that don't happen the way that we just know deep inside that they're just supposed to happen this way and we get so frustrated? And the enemy loves to take that and say, well, see, there you go. You're just a failure. So you'll never be what you're supposed to be. And he, he takes what was a blessing to our life and turns it around and tries to flip it into a curse of futility, saying you're never going to be. You're never going to measure up. See, the enemy is always about changing our culture. We see in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says this, that the God of this age, who? The God of this age, this culture, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So who has blinded the world's eyes? The enemy, the God of this, he blinded them so that they cannot see the glory. That's what he's after. He's after the glory of the image of God. And so he has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers so that they cannot see that. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus Christ. We don't preach ourselves as Lord, correct? We preach Jesus is Lord, and we are his servants. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So listen to this. You, as believers, as citizens of the kingdom, you are filled with light that is meant to engage the culture whom the God of this age has blinded. You are a blinding light in that sense. You are meant to dispel the darkness of this culture. When you understand him as king and Lord, when you're actually operating in the culture of the kingdom, your life is meant to dispel the blindness of unbelief. Simple. It's not hard. It is not difficult. You just need to under, you just need to, you need to be in the kingdom. You need to identify with the kingdom. And I know I have that, again, somewhere in my notes. I have a, a note to tell me, remember my note. But in this culture, we have such a thing as being able to identify as. This is crazy. We were we were actually having this whole conversation in the airport, you know, which was like, well, if I identify as a hawk, can I get to the front of the line or an eagle? Can I get to the front of the line you know, because I need to fly, you know? Um, that in this culture, we have this phrase and this thing that says, well, if I identify this way, then you cannot tell me any different. The poor, the poor public school teachers who have to deal with children who have decided to identify as a cat, and they have to restructure their classroom in such a way to make room for a child who identifies as a cat and even put it in a litter box. 
The God of this age has blinded us, them, us, them, us, right? So Satan is not a creator, so he's going to be using the exact same methods that he used in the beginning, right? He's, he's doing this to steal the morals, the thinking, and the strength of a nation. A culture makes up a nation. A nation has a culture, right? So the enemy is coming to steal the morals and the thinking and the strength of a nation. He desires to own culture. He doesn't care about anything else. He wants the culture of it. He wants the culture of the people. Because if he can have the culture of the people, he can do whatever he wants with them. And if, if we were just to look around church, we would see this is happening right in front of us every given moment of the day, right? So, so is this Bible? Can we find Bible for this? One of the one of the best examples of this is David. I mean, it is Daniel. So Daniel's in in Babylon, right? We find that the the kingdom of of Babylon gets comes and invades Judah, and the king says, all right. Takes, tells his top servant, I want you to go throughout all of the kingdom and I want you to identify the, the, the young men who are smart, who come from good families, who are known leaders in their community. I want you to go and I want you to find them and I want you to get them and I want you to bring them into my court. And we're going to set a table for them of the richest food. They're going to get the king's cup. They're going to be taught all of the mysteries of Babylon and for three years, we're going to we're going to craft them and mold them, and then we're going to set them into leadership in our kingdom. Okay? And that happens. That is how Nebuchadnezzar and the kings of Babylon, and even the Persian kings, that's what they decided to do, was we're going we're gonna to take over the whole, basically the whole world by invading the culture, and we're going to use the best-looking, you know, the ones with swag. Right? We're going to use the, we're going to use those the influencers of this town, and we're going to get them into our culture, and then we're just going to turn them loose, and they're going to do exactly what we want them to do with power. And I love Daniel's response because that needs to be our response as a church. Daniel says in Daniel one eight. So all of this is happening. He gets captured. He's with his buds. They're facing this indoctrination, and he says this. But Daniel resolved, made a commitment. He resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's rich food or with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, wait a minute. Daniel, who was raised as a good Jewish boy in all of the ways of Torah, he comes from a, from a priestly lineage and he makes his stand on food? Why? Why food? He doesn't make a stand of, I'm not going to listen to anything that, you know, the Babylonian Empire tells me is gospel truth doctrine. I'm not going to, I'm not going to learn any of the, of the things. I'm not going to do any of the classes. Why didn't he, why didn't he make a stand there? Because he understood the principle of appetite. You see, it's about your appetite. Daniel knew that if he could get persuaded in his appetites, in his fleshly appetites, where his body went, his soul would go to. 
and the enemy knows that about us. And so my first question for you this morning is what are you hungry for? Where are your appetites? Where do they reside? Is it, is it about your flesh? Is it about how you look on the outside, what you wear, what you drink? Is this an echo of something that you were going to hear in a few minutes? Because if that is where it is, that is where your soul will follow. But are you hungry for the things of the kingdom? Are you hungry for the spiritual food that is your portion? Because if you are, then that is where your soul goes. You see, because Daniel set himself to not partake of the king's food, guess what? We find him praying three times a day in his window, don't we? And we find him learning from the Babylonians so much so that Daniel becomes the chief of all of the magicians and the soothsayers. He becomes the head of the whole bunch. And he finds in there hints and truths to where he actually puts into prophecy, there's going to come a day, behold Bethlehem, you better pay attention, there's going to be a star. And when you see that star, that's our Savior. See, Daniel was the one that did that. And God used him in the middle of that to give us a prophecy of the star that would be coming and showing up in the sky, which would pronounce our Savior. You see, where your appetites are, your soul will follow. What are you hungry for? So this kingdom of heaven thing can become like this surreal, otherworldly kind of a thing. Where is the kingdom of heaven? Is it just in heaven? You know, is it is it on earth? Is it now? Is it yet? Is it coming? Where is the kingdom of heaven? Luke 17, 20 and 21, Jesus says, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here, it's over here. Or see, the kingdom of heaven is over here. It's not how it comes. Indeed, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is where? Within you. Because the kingdom of God begins in the heart, there is only one way to gain access to the kingdom. There must be a change in your heart. And here's how Jesus put it. Very truly, John 3, 3, very truly, I tell you, no one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So you see, from the very beginning of these ways, you may identify as, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Can you see the kingdom of God? If you cannot see the kingdom of God, you're not born again. Only those who are born again can see the kingdom. You will have no access unless you're born again to the kingdom of God. Remember, it's a spiritual kingdom that begins when you, for you, that begins when you are born again. And you surrender lordship to God in your heart. You see, being born again and the king go hand in hand. Because when you are born again, you say, I am done being the king and the master of my own universe, in which that reality is there is nothing left for me ever again. And now, Lord, I have surrendered to your lordship and your mastery over me, and you are king. That is, that, that is the very first movement of a citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. That is like landing on Ellis Island. You know, it's like you are king. You are king, and I surrender. Eventually, there will be a very physical kingdom of God that we will see. When Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom on this earth, now 
The kingdom is in your heart. It is right here, right now. It is a kingdom. It is a whole universe in your heart. I love the scripture that says God put eternity in our hearts. Why? So that we could know the kingdom. So that we could know God. So that we could be in the kingdom. It takes eternity to live in the kingdom of God. 70, 80 years in this kingdom by strength. But eternity is forever and ever and ever and ever. And what we do right here, right now, church, positions positions you for your kingdom reality. You realize he's a, he says that he's a, a God who comes with reward. He will return with rewards to give you according to your words. Do you realize that he knows you so well? He knows what delights your heart. He has work for you to do of an eternal nature that is going to please you more than anything you have ever done in your entire life. And yet, I promise you, it will not be foreign to you. The work that you will do for eternity will swell in your heart with such gladness because he made you to do a work, a good work that he that he had ordained before you were even born these good things for you to do. Now, where does it say that we can't know that now? What is the number one question that everybody is asking is, what is my purpose? Why was I made? What am I supposed to do with my life? That is the echo in the hearts of, of all of humanity. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. The Lord says, I would love to answer that for you. I mean, would that not be amazing to to step over and change addresses from this life, just continuing in the identity and the purpose that we know we're doing, but having it more fulfilled than we've ever known. Wouldn't that be beautiful to know what you were born for and, and do it now and then? Isn't that a candy? Isn't that a now and or now and later? Okay, it was ringing, sorry. The kingdom of God is where Jesus is king, where his people follow his rule and seek his will. It says in Revelation that he has on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name. I love, I love that song, Sarah, this morning. I just set it up so good. But he has a name. And it says, King of kings and the Lord of lords. When you receive Christ into your life as Savior and Lord, you're born again. You become a chosen people. You're a family of God. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. These are the words that the Lord uses to say, this is your inheritance. And your king is beautiful, and he's powerful. And I think so often we lose sight of what we're in it for. He is a very powerful king. There is no other name like his name. Sometimes we sing and we hear it so much it becomes powerless to us. But we have to understand, there is nothing that can conquer him. As a matter of fact, he has already conquered death, hell, the grave, and he is seated. Is he not? And then he says, oh, all authority has been given to me. And so guess what? As my regent, I give it to you. Now go rule. That's right back in Genesis. He restored the kingdom, dominion, power, and authority that was given to Adam through his death, burial, and resurrection. He says, now go rule. So church, are you ruling in your life? Are you ruling? Do you wake up every day with feeling the authority that God gave you and you are conquering your day? I mean, Tyler and I kind of have a thing about winning the day. It's your portion. It's supposed to be your heritage. And yet, how many phone calls have we exchanged with one another saying, oh my God, I barely made it through the day. I was just scraping and bloody and bleeding. Boy, the enemy had the victory today. And I did this. I was, no, your portion is to win. And the beauty of it is, when we are our weakest, we win the most. 
because it's another paradox of this kingdom that we're in. So the, king, the kingdom culture of heaven is defined by the key traits of, of its people. Um, who consistently experience powerful partnership with the Holy Spirit. By doing so, we are invading earth with the atmosphere of heaven. I want you guys to start making a switch. You see, the, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven are in opposition. The kingdom of heaven is an inside-out, upside-down, backwards-to-our-normal-thinking kingdom. We are called to walk this earth with an atmosphere and a presence and a fragrance that invades it because we are pulling from a heavenly reality. We are meant to invade earth with the fragrance of heaven. That's, if you're wanting to know what is that, am I supposed to be doing today, you're supposed to be a fragrance of heaven today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. When you partner with the Holy Spirit, what you do is, is, is you're partnering with the heart of God. You see, God dwells in a reality of perfection, perfect love, perfect peace, perfect joy. He is not worried. He is not falling off his throne with the political atmosphere. He is confident. He is assured. That is his reality. And that is the atmosphere that he dwells in that he says, now the kingdom is within you. Go walk that in the midst of chaos. And by doing so, you will be light and you will be fragrance and you will be truth in an age of darkness in which the God of this world has blinded them to the truth. When, you are, when you're operating in a kingdom perspective and a kingdom reality, you are the fragrance of life to those who are dying. So my question, how is the kingdom of God invading earth in your life? Or is it? Where are you individually? Where are you influencing culture? Just think a moment. Are you influencing culture? Does your life make a difference to the culture of this world? How? How are you doing that? In what way? How are you making a difference? in the Clearwater Corridor. Characteristics of a kingdom citizen, right? We know we can kind of look at Canadians and we can say that's Canadian. We can look at Americans and say that's Americans. We can go to Mexico and say that's a Mexican. There's certain things that characterize citizens of nations, okay? What characterizes a kingdom citizen? Well, kingdom citizens are committed to developing Christ-like you will know a kingdom citizen because Galatians says that a kingdom citizen will be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. What does that look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. A kingdom citizen is going to keep their word. They're going to be faithful to their promises. A kingdom citizen is going to be slow to fly off the handle. That self-control component if you're looking for another citizen, look for the fruit of the Spirit. Kingdom citizens, they have compassion on the suffering and the oppressed. It's usually the kingdom citizens that you will find out reaching to those that are afflicted, those that are in need, those that are, are oppressed, whether that's social, socially or physically oppressed. They understand God measures the quality of worship 
by the mercy that it motivates. You find that in Hosea. God is after mercy. You say my worship matters and my worship is great and I love the way worship does it. Is it characterized by mercy? If it's not characterized by mercy, that's not the worship that the Lord desires. Compassion leads kingdom citizens to a pursuit of justice for all of the oppressed, Micah 6. Are you standing up for those that are oppressed around you or do you just turn the other way and walk on down the street? Do you look away when you're in the midst of of conversations that you know are hurting someone? Do you come and step in in mercy and compassion and try to bring truth? Do you get engaged? Are you engaged in the oppression of your community? A kingdom citizen would be engaged. Kingdom citizens exhibit hospitality for the lonely and the disconnected. Do we know any of those in our life? Do we know the lonely? Do we know the disconnected? A kingdom citizen will have an open heart and an open home. Like Jesus, they welcome the rejected and extend grace to the compromised. Do you distance yourself from those that are compromised? Or do you open yourself up to those who are compromised and you extend them grace? You see, grace reigns in the kingdom. It actually says in Romans that grace reigns. A kingdom citizen will be slow to judge and quick to embrace. Kingdom citizens are humble and courageous. I like that one. They're extremely humble knowing that they too are sinners saved by grace. Is that your reality? Do you understand that testimony? That But for the grace of God, there go I. That, you know, you can look at someone and you can go, oh, man, I, I get it. I am you. But for God's grace, I would be exactly right where you are right now today. They humbly acknowledge their own failures and seek to correct their own faults before the faults of others. Looking for a kingdom citizen? They're not going to come at you until they first dealt with what they know to be true about themselves. At the same time, they've got the courage to speak truth and love and to receive truth and love. You see, a kingdom citizen knows it's both ways. It's not always their voice in your ear, but they can receive that truth and love too. But they're not afraid because they love you enough to say, wait a minute, what I'm seeing going on here, this, this isn't right. This is going to lead to destruction. Come away from the pit. Come away from the darkness. Don't make that decision. Don't do that. It's going to hurt you. You know, one of the prayers that my mother prayed again and again and again is, Lord, keep her from evil that her soul will not be grieved. I can still hear it in my head. I think she probably prayed it over my crib. I heard it again and again and again and again. It was her prayer. It was her heart's cry. was that I would stay away from evil so my soul would not be grieved. She went after my soul as a child. Not so much for the external, well, that would be a bad consequence and life would suck. It would be, no, your soul, Lord. Stay away from that, but your soul will not be wounded in you. Kingdom citizens are committed to peacemaking and bridge building. You find that in your life. They want the brothers and sisters to dwell in unity. Is that the, the motive of your conversations? Are you after making a bridge? Are you after building peace? How beautiful it is when the brethren dwell together. It's like the oil that came down off of Aaron's beard and it just dripped, the Bible says. 
You realize in the heart of God, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the sons of God. If that is your, you know, are you always at war and, and always following discord, or are you building a bridge into peace? You are your kingdom citizen. Kingdom citizens are generous, generous, and they're passionate about prayer. They're generous with their time, with their treasure, and with their talent. Are you generous with the gifts that God gave you? Do you share them? Are you generous with your treasure, with your time? In 1 John 5.14, a kingdom citizen, their very first inclination is going to be the inclination to pray. Is that what you do first? Do you hit your knees first? Or is it we pick up the phone and we talk about it for a while? A kingdom citizen knows where the power is, and they hit their knees, and they go to the king on behalf of the requests that are made to them. A kingdom citizen's first inclination is prayer. All of that can actually be summed up in two principles of the kingdom. And we all know this one. Jesus said the two greatest commandments of all is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, all other kingdom principles are based on these two. You will, you will, they'll either relate to your relationship with God or it's going to be your relationship with other people. So how you behave and how you act and how you're moving in the kingdom is going to be marked by those two things. So when we live in the United States, we still have some freedoms. There's still some blessings to being an American citizen compared to other countries. We still have the right to vote. You know, we still have the right to pay taxes. It's all right. There's blessings of living in a nation. There's also blessings of living in the kingdom. What are they? As a citizen, one of the greatest blessings is that you are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? And it's hard for us, especially in Americans. We're so independent, and we're so in our own head, and we're so all about our rights, that for me to say to you, it is a blessing, Kelly, for you to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the beginning of this inside out, upside down. What do you mean it's a blessing for me to live under a monarch? It is. Jesus said, as a matter of fact, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. A surrendered life is defined by meekness. A citizen of the kingdom's surrendered life is going to be defined by meekness. Larry um, gave me this, it was a devotion from Bob Sorge. He says, once, Bob Sorge gave me this comment, once you have been buried and resurrected, the aroma of burial burial never fully leaves you. A kingdom citizen under the lordship of Jesus Christ is characterized by the meekness of Jesus. As a citizen, you're under God's protection. John 10, 27 through 30, My sheep listen to my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them what? Eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. You know, we often hear that and say, well, I'm a citizen of the kingdom. And I'm under the Lord's protection. But all of these bad things have happened to me. We're looking at it wrong. The protection that the Father offers you as a citizen of the kingdom is eternal. 
we will have suffering in this life this as part of living this life and that suffering even the suffering was meant it has a purpose it's meant to draw you close to the heart of your savior who suffered in whose footsteps you walk you follow a bleeding suffering savior how well do you follow him but for eternity when you follow him nothing can take you out of the father's hand you are secure your soul is secure forever you may have years of struggle in this in this life but you will never be snatched out of his hand because you're a citizen of the king when you are a citizen you're under his provision what does jesus say in matthew 6 don't worry what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink what you're going to wear your you know pagans run after these things but your heavenly father knows that you need them you see the lord knows you need clothes you know father he knows you need the under armor clothes cuz that's what's lack he knows what you need and he lovingly willingly and and is filled with delight loves to give you those things you need but he says but don't get it out of place because why back to daniel if that becomes your appetite your soul's going to follow what you wear and your soul's going to follow what you drink and your soul's going to follow the type of food that you eat he says no you seek first the kingdom and then all these things will be added unto you why because your appetites will be put back into better perspective you see when you're seeking first the kingdom of god the appetite for what you wear changes are you wearing it to flaunt it or are you wearing it as the temple of the living god and you're giving him glory in your clothing choices I mean, when was the last time you went shopping saying, "I can't wait to go shopping to give God glory." Woo! You know, what is it that he wants me to wear because it's going to testify of his goodness? But when your appetites change, it becomes all about the kingdom and not about your physical appearance in and of itself. We're called to be as the temples. It says to take care of your body because that is your your worship. You know, taking care of the temple is your good and right worship. Yeah, let's take care of it. It's meant to serve us. We have work to do. Let's take care of our temple. But if it becomes about the appetites of it, our soul is going to be led astray. So seek first the kingdom, then everything gets added unto you. As a kingdom citizen, you get to surrender to God's purpose. Again, it's one of those why? But what about my will and my life and my way? Don't you realize when you surrender to God's purpose, it's more than you can even think, dream, hope, or imagine. I know the plans I have for you says the Lord plans to prosper you not to do you harm but to give you an expected end all the days of your life. He says you have a 70 year plan maybe. He says but I have a plan for eternity and it's filled with my purposes. Why don't you get on board with my plan and start living that now? We get to live in his purpose. He teaches us to pray this in Matthew 6. Your kingdom come your will be done he says pray this way it's not going to be natural for you you're going to want to pray christina's will and kingdom come and her will be done because it's really good and i think it will really work and he says never but when you pray father i want your kingdom to come in this situation and i want your will to be done even though i don't understand it i want your kingdom reality to be at work and i want your will to be done guess what He says that I breathe on and all of heaven backs it up. 
You have all of the resources of heaven to show up to that prayer. When you don't know how to pray in a situation, go back to the way Jesus taught you how to pray. Father, your kingdom come and your will be done. And it will come back into alignment every time. So as I'm wrapping this up into a conclusion, I want to remind you that God, God's kingdom works backwards. His reasoning and promises and ambitions for us are often counterintuitive. It's one of the most difficult truths to explain to people, and yet it's one of the most important. So I've compiled a list of kingdom paradoxes from Scripture, ways that seem backward to us but normative to God. So I just want you to hear this. This is your kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. Where? Yes, where the humble are exalted, the exalted are humbled. You lose your life to find it, and you find your life when you lose it. Where slavery leads to freedom, where the foolish are wise, where the poor are rich, where the weak are strong, where you give to receive, where the first are last, and the last are first, <laughs> where there's wealthy paupers and happy mourners and passive victors and zealous gluttons and self-enriching benefactors and everyday visionaries and adopted ambassadors, winning losers. I love that one. And then there's these spiritual development paradoxes that are so important. The paradox of spiritual growth. The more that you mature spiritually, the more you realize how much you still need to mature. Right? The paradox of spiritual enlightenment, right? The more enlightened that you become, the more childlike that you assume. The paradox of knowing and mystery, the more that you know God, the more comfortable you are with all that you do not know about God. And above all, church, it's the paradox of love. The more love that you require, because you know how much you need it, the more love that you have to give away. Heaven, as citizen of the kingdom, is a pilgrim on this earth while seeking a homeland whose builder and maker is God. It's in Hebrews 11. I just want to leave you with the reality that heaven is real. Heaven is real. Sorry, you can find me. The kingdom is at hand. It is now, and it is not yet. Do you have this hope? When you close your eyes, do you see the reality that is more real than the bed that you're laying in or the chair that you're sitting in or the car that you're driving or the job that you're working at? Do you understand that there is a kingdom that is within you that is also waiting to encompass you? I've, um, I've been going through this book. I don't often do book clubs. Oh, yeah, I do. What am I saying? I do often do book clubs. I would encourage everyone, 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 everyone to get this book. It's by John Burke. Yeah, I have it on audio. It's an ebook. It's a hard copy. These are testimonies of people who have had near-death experiences and what they have encountered um, in their near-death experiences. And very well vetted. So 
years and years and years of research and personal interviews and testimonies of individuals who've encountered heaven. And amazingly, I'm almost halfway through this, and amazingly, you know what, what the most common experience was with people who have died and come back? When they saw Jesus, they, Jesus asked one question. Did you learn to love? Did you learn to love? So if the kingdom principles are built upon love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, wouldn't it stand to reason then that thousands, we're talking thousands of people, when they encounter the Lord, the Lord Jesus looks at them and asks them that question, did you learn to love? If that is our purpose, then church, what are we doing? What are we doing when we're bickering and arguing and fighting and squabbling and scratching and clawing and hating and spitting and all those things? The Lord is going to ask each and every one of us, I do believe that, that question. In this life that I gave you, did you learn to love? So let's start by learning to love now. And let's love well. Let's love the Lord our God. Let's love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's influence the culture of the Clearwater Corridor with that kingdom reality everywhere we go. And let's watch as the fragrance of heaven takes over. Amen? Let us stand with us in So, Father, I do. I thank you so much. Thank you, Father, that you you have given us you have given us the the insight into your heart. Lord Jesus, you said that you had gone to prepare a place for us, that where you are, there we might be also. And Father, I believe that that is a yet, but it is also a now. Because Lord Jesus, when you walked this earth, you you changed culture every time. You opened your mouth, and every time you you stepped foot into a city, Lord Jesus, you changed the culture. You changed the environment of everyone around you. Because you walked, Lord Jesus, in the identity of the Son of God, beloved of the Father, chosen. You knew who you were. And Father, you gave that to all of those people, and you gave that to us. Lord, we are your beloved. We are your church. We are bought and paid for with a very hefty price. Your precious blood redeemed us from sin and darkness in the grave. God, help us to live like we have been redeemed and chosen. Lord, help us to live like we're wanted. Father, fix our gaze to be upon your face, not upon the delights of this world, Lord. I just ask that you would that you would anoint the people of your hand with a new anointing, a new baptism, Lord, a baptism of of love so strong that, Father, we, we don't look to the delights that this world can give us, but, God, we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. But, Lord, righteousness becomes what is on our mind. Righteousness in every argument, righteousness in every conversation, righteousness in every business dealing, Father, righteousness in our relationships with one another, that, God, we begin to pursue the heart of righteousness, and that, Lord, it, it it causes us, Father, to excel and to grow, to mature. We just thank you that we can ask you for this. 
We can ask you for this this morning. We ask you for it, God. And we trust you with how that's going to work out in each one of our lives. You are good. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.